the word of God from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is in their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back on them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I saw, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks, David. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for these words that you put in our mouths. Now, open our hearts. And as we prayed earlier, give us a sturdy patience to walk with you in joy and in trust. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, fam. I'm Ronnie. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, uh, if you are a visitor, and there's a few of you, um, we're really glad that you're here. This summer, we're studying the Psalms. And uh, if you don't know, there's lots of different kinds of Psalms. Uh, this morning, we have heard for us, read uh, Psalm 73, which is a Psalm of wisdom. Now, this is quite interesting because the nature of this Psalm explores doubt. And the idea here is that understanding and managing our doubts helps us to live with wisdom in this life. Now, doubt is a really big topic in the Bible, and so it's important for us to spend some time thinking about this together. 
And for most of us in this room right now, this is not academic. Most of us have struggled with legitimate, titanic-sized doubts, and I would imagine that the majority of us still presently walk in our Christian lives with unanswered questions. And so if you are here today, I hope this comforts you. Now, if you are here today and you don't particularly struggle with doubts, you need to hear this too, because your day is coming. No one gets a pass. And on that day of real doubt, and it'll come, what I want you to hear is, it's okay. You're okay. God is most certainly not afraid of your doubts. My own children have real questions about me. They doubt me all the time. Uh, But do you think for one second that my love for them is contingent on their unbreakable confidence in me? Do you think that my love for them wavers when my children are questioning if they even want to be a Garcia? Absolutely not. And if that's what I'm like, as an average to below average dad, how much more our Heavenly Father? So doubt is not a problem to be overcome. It is a reality to wade into with wisdom. The late, great Tim Keller, he says this. He says, faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. In other words, faith is strengthened by doubt, even if the doubt is never resolved. And so this morning through Psalm 73, God is putting words in our mouth to say back to him, to sing back to him, and they're going to take us on this journey of redemptively living with doubt. So let's get right to it. There are four ways that this psalm helps us to manage our doubts in a healthy way, and they're this way. Four words, expect, know, fight, and pray your doubts. Expect, know, fight, and pray your doubts. Let's start with expect your doubts. Yes, this is a four-point sermon. <laughs> Buckle up. All right, here we go. Expect your doubts. Now, I can remember something like seven or eight years ago, there was a big scandal about Mother Teresa. Uh, the secular news had learned by way of her diary that she, uh, was, she had wrestled with the belief that God could love her. And uh, at times, she records that her spiritual life was quite dry, and she felt and doubted that God existed at all. And in fact, this wasn't just one night. I mean, this lasted for almost over four decades. And so when you would read or listen to these secular outlets, they were almost astounded by her doubt. They didn't have categories to understand her inner life, particularly because she was known as being one of the most spiritual people who have ever walked this earth. Now, when I learned about uh, Mother Teresa's doubt, and I imagine you might have had a similar reaction, I thought to myself, 
Of course she struggled and wrestled with doubt. And I believe that precisely because she's such an amazing person doing an amazing work, not in spite of it. I mean, my own life of doubt only awakens my admiration and empathy. And Mother Teresa, you guys, is not the exception to the rule or an outlier. I mean, you got like Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of the 19th and 20th century, wrestled with crippling doubt and depression most of his life. In fact, the Bible itself is riddled with people who have had serious doubts. And I'm not just talking about doubting Thomas. It's Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Elijah, Gideon, John the Baptist, Peter. All kinds of people have doubts. And it's not unfair to say that the Gospels, in some ways, are a record of people doubting until they get faith. And then, they, and then it describes their journey of faith as they manage their doubts. So Psalm 73 is written... Uh, We're told by this angsty musician. Uh, Most of you musicians are a little bit angsty. I know who you are. Um, His name is Asaph, and he was one of King Solomon's um, prized artists. And, and, And he's the one writing this, and here's the point. If all of these people that I've mentioned struggled with doubts, then you should expect Doubts in your heart as well. And so Asaph writes this psalm to invite us into this expectation. Look how he begins the psalm in verses 1 and 2. He begins, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So Asaph begins by declaring what he intellectually knows to be true. Like, he knows that God is good to Israel, and yet what he sees seems to contradict that. It would appear to him that God is good to other nations, to other people, and not to him. And this discrepancy between what he declares to be true and what he sees is like a flower bed of doubt. And it's serious. It's like, it's serious. Like in the Hebrew, uh, that language of stumbling feet that you see there in verse two is much stronger than just tripping on your way, you know, to the kitchen or whatever. It's more like losing a foothold. Like what you see in, um, like if you were on a free solo, y'all know what that is? That guy, Alex Honnold, I think, as he climbs El Capitan on the, uh, in, that face in the Yosemite Park, and he does it like without any ropes. That's what it's being described here. The grip of your feet is going to be lost, and you will fall to your spiritual death. And this doubt really makes your soul sick. Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. That's quite a thing to sing, isn't it? Like my whole life feels like a sham. I've done all these things the right way. But for what? But for what? It's all a big cosmic joke. That's how it feels sometimes, doesn't it? And the psalmist 
is putting these words of doubt in your mouth. Why? Why? Because if you don't already, you need to expect your doubts. Don't be caught by surprise when ideas and thoughts cross your imagination. See, in order to live a wise life, you need to be sober about doubts and expect them. So if you expect that at some point doubt will be a part of your story, you can come out of it a much more strong person and even, while you doubt, grow in your faith. So this is going to require now our second point. It's going to require you to know your doubts. So expect your doubts. Now know your doubts. And when I talk about this, y'all, I'm talking about significant questions, not easily ignorable I'm talking about the kinds of doubts that really slow you down in your tracks because they're not just academic. They usually come from a part of your story, painful story. C.S. Lewis, uh, you you guys know him. Um, He wrote a book when he was in his 40s called The Problem of Pain. And in it, he addresses the, the, you know, what theologians call the problem of evil, uh, which is a problem that every worldview or every religion struggles with us, not just Christians. Now, Christians usually, uh, their shorthand expression of it is something like this. If God is loving, and if God is powerful, if he's both of those things, then why do I suffer? What does that say about God? So C.S. Lewis writes this book, and you've probably heard really important quotes from this book. He says that God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain, he says, is the megaphone God uses to rouse a deaf world. Have, you heard, have y'all heard that quote before? Okay. The book is good, but honestly, it feels a little bit clinical, a little bit sterile. Well, about 20 years later, Lewis's wife, she passes away, and he goes into a really significant season of doubt. Now, by this point in his life, he's already like this famous apologist. He's already written the great work, Mere Christianity, all the Chronicles of Narnia. He's already fairly famous. And now he enters into the season of deep doubt and depression. And as he's reflecting on this, he writes another book, but under a pseudonym, so that he can write real and raw and honest reflections And this book is called A Grief Observed. And he explains that he expected that that God used pain to rouse a deaf world. And he says, but God did not rouse me. He says, God went silent and it nearly shattered me. And he said that he cried out to God in deep pain. He says, I was convinced that nowhere else Could I get something that would satisfy my soul? But he he goes on and he says, but what I heard from heaven was silence. What he actually heard was a door slamming shut with the bolt being locked from the inside. And he was so spiritually frustrated. And so he wrote that book while he was still processing his grief. But he didn't put his own name on it. He says, look, I'm fearful. Not that... I'm going to discover that God doesn't exist. He says, I'm fearful that when I discover him, I'm going to learn really horrible things about him. 
and that what he learns about God will be nothing of what he thought God was like. And then there will be no more chances. He says, I'm afraid that that is what I'm going to discover. And then there's no deceiving oneself any longer about who God is. He says, the real danger is coming to see such dreadful things about God that the conclusion I fear is not that there is no God after all, but what God is actually like. So he writes this book where he's trying to process his grief and doubt. And about a dozen of his friends actually buy that book and give it to him to try to encourage him. (laughs) Thinking they'll be like, hey, you got to read this book. It might help you out. So he ends up outing himself. He's like, yeah, I'm the one who read this book. And what's interesting is his faith really came out on the other side because this exercise helped him to really understand the source of his fears and doubts. It was this grief of losing his wife. I mention all that because there is a real self-awareness about the nature of doubt in this psalm. It's complicated because, you know, the people, people use the word doubt to refer to all kinds of things, right? Some people... Uh, refer to doubt, uh, they doubt that God exists. Other people doubt, or they, they believe that God exists, but they doubt that he's good. Other people believe that God exists and that he's good, but they doubt that God loves them. And the point here is that we have all of these different uses of the word doubt to describe all of these things. And so our doubt is like a mosaic of things. But here's the weird thing, everyone. We usually repackage all of that doubt, and we call it intellectual doubt. We like to say that we have intellectual reasons for not believing in God, and it's very difficult for us to see that these are actually emotional doubts that are just masquerading as intellectual doubts. It's pain. It's part of our story. It's worth saying that there's so much about God and reality for which we lack understanding, all right? That's different. And for instance, I don't even understand how my iPhone works. There's so much about the nature of God that lie way beyond us. And it's absolutely true that we cannot prove God's existence. Hear me? We cannot prove God's existence. As it turns out, though, we cannot prove much of anything not in a formal realm, and if you're schooled in philosophy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We can't even prove that human rights are a good idea, not in any formal sense. Now, this doesn't mean that our faith is blind or naive. It's simply that we have to make assumptions that seem to be self-evident to us, that make more sense to us than the opposite. There will always be some lack of understanding in any statement that goes beyond the realm of scientific proof or self-evidentialism. And this, of course, is not unique to Christianity. Atheism or any worldview is based on some level of faith. To be human is to have faith. That's the nature of worshiping an infinite God who we cannot grasp And so it's important that we know the nature of our doubts, which is precisely what this psalm, why it's so helpful. Look at verse 3. He honestly says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
So Asaph's lens for understanding the world has been contaminated with envy. So like as modern people, we tend to ask the question, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Heard that question? Why do bad things happen to good people? For ancients, they asked the opposite question. Why do good things happen to bad people? That's what he's doing here. So in verse 4 through 12, he describes the emotions that are shaping his view and his doubt with God, his discomfort with God. Look at verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Fat here is a compliment. Only the wealthy had enough food to better gain weight. So that's a compliment for them. Verse 5. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of us. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. 9, they set their mouths against heavens and they say, how can God know? So their faith or lack of faith seems to have no consequences in their life. And you can see the, the dissonance, can't you? God apparently is good to Israel and yet those who could care less about God they're the ones who are prospering. And if that's true, then does the word good have any meaning in any meaningful sense? And it forces the psalmer, the singer, into doubt when he says in verse 13, all in vain I have kept my heart clean. What am I even doing? He almost lost his faith because of the incongruities that he observed in the world. Asaph felt real envy. He secretly feels like he deserves the life that they have. Either they're getting things that he deserves and they don't even like God, or he's getting a, he has a story and pain that they don't have. And he's envious. And it creates real doubt. And it's important for us to see this because, Denver Press, that is true in our hearts. Envy, when it's nestled into our hearts, can masquerade as intellectual doubt. It's very convenient to blame the world. Right? We start saying, I've, I've worshiped God with my whole heart, and I really want a spouse, and God's not bringing me one. Is God even real? I have worshiped God with my whole heart and I really want this job and God's not bringing it to me. Is God even real? I didn't want this really sad thing to happen to me and I've worshiped you with my whole heart and this is what I get repaid with? Is God even real? God seems to be silent in the things that are so important to me. Things that I really want are the things that I have suffered. Perhaps he's not there at all. Because other people who could care less about God are getting all the things that I think would make me happy. I guess I don't believe in God anymore. Not, not in any meaningful sense anyway. Can you see how this works? If you don't understand the nature of your doubt, you'll begin to be sucked into that logic. You have to know your doubts so that instead of walking away from God in those moments, you learn to lament or just be sad about these things. 
These things that you want but don't get are these things that happen to you that you don't understand why. It allows you just to be honest and just be sad instead of doubting. That's a better way. That's actually a more honest path. And be warned, you guys, like I see this all the time. Young people who are involved in church, following Jesus, they move from all parts of the country. They move here to Denver And they get here, and there's no social structure to keep them involved. And so they walk away chasing the thing that they believed would actually make them happy, abandoning God, who they perceived was just a straight jacket anyway. The thing that's going to make them whole, they get to abandon that. And so you must know your doubts. But once you know your doubts, you must fight your doubts. This is my third point. I read the most interesting story about this young man who joined a church so that he didn't have to attend church anymore. It doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense, but it made perfect sense to him. He grew up in a family that went to church regularly, but he honestly didn't see the point of it. He thought that church was boring and irrelevant, and it became the perennial fight in their house because his parents were always making him go to church. So one day he looks at his parents and says, I'm not doing this anymore. And his dad said, oh, yes, you are. And they reached this agreement where his dad says, on my watch, you are going to church until you join it. And then after that, you're on your own. So he did membership classes. And at the end, when he was being interviewed, you know, about his testimony, he said, uh, you know, I'm not sure I really believe any of this. I mean, I've tried to, but I have real doubts. And they sort of just waved him through. And he was really glad about that so that now, as a member, he proceeded to stop going to church. Worked out for him. Now, in his defense, he would say that he never heard the gospel, right? What he heard was, God is watching you, so you better be good. That's what he, that's what he heard. But he never heard the message of grace. Like, God's grace to strugglers, to doubters, to morally ambiguous people like all of us in this room. Now, at some point, he did hear the gospel. He surrendered his life to Jesus. He came to faith. And when he did, he believed that at some point in his life, these doubts that he had would go away. I mean, he saw other people who seemed to believe very easily with lots of trust, and it was all very simple for them. And he assumed that over time that he would get to a spot, you know, where that would happen for him. But after a decade or so, he realized it just wasn't going to happen. And I actually imagine that some of you in this room, you're like, hey, I've been walking with Jesus. I would assume that these doubts would go away. They might not. It's okay. I know I go through these seasons of doubt, and I'm your pastor. That's how come Psalm 73 teaches us to manage our doubts. It puts all the right and honest words in our mouth to say back to God. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. You see what he's saying there? Like there's this embodied faith when you show up in the sanctuary with the people of God. And it doesn't mean that you always feel it when you come here, 
But it works something truly meaningful, just you being present in your spirit. Just by showing up, even if it was unwilling, even if you're dry, just by showing up, you're trusting God to do something that you have not observed God to ever do. (laughs) That's faith. Being a part of a worshiping community reframes your life. I mean, yes, you have doubts, but then there's this community that provides this web of strength against your doubts, or at least there's friends to carry your doubts with you. We are all in serious peril and in danger when we move into isolation. The moment you say, I don't need the institution, right? Because we're cynical like that, right? I don't need the institution. As soon as you say that, you just want private spirituality. You are in desperate peril. Isn't that exactly what happened during COVID? So many people walked away from their faith. Their doubts overcame them because their community, imperfect as it was, was replaced by an online or a media community or an algorithm of social media community. And that is what's possibilitizing your world, not your faith community, who you're having way more conversations with than your church. For Asaph, he made real progress against his doubts when he went into the sanctuary. But you'll notice something else that he does. Look there, he's fighting his doubts by doubting them. So instead of just assuming that all these people who could care less about God are winning, he begins to think about their lives sort of metaphysically. In other words, he's doubting his doubts. He begins by saying, it looks like all these guys are winning, but are they? So he asks the question, but are they? I mean, it looks like that. Are they? Look at verse 18 through 20. He says in 18, truly, you've set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. In other words, yeah, they're not getting what they think they're getting. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. These words are the words of judgment, right? And what makes this so scary is that the person who is putting the entirety of their hopes and satisfaction in something in this life that will one day, it'll disappear like a bad dream. Like you might think that you get a Lamborghini, but then you wake up. And there's no Lamborghini. This life is like a vapor. And it is foolish and it is unwise to stake who you are on a vapor. That's the warning. And so by rehearsing this, the psalmist is doubting his doubts. He's asking, is this momentary life the ultimate good that we should pursue above all other things. He's like, well, maybe not. Maybe not. And when the doubter's heart is refocused by eternity, it brings this humility that's grounding to him, right? In other words, when we do that, we are humbled, but we're not abandoned. Look at verse 22. He says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He's like, I I thought I had it figured all out, 
I thought I could see what the infinite God could see, but that's so naive. I, I was like a beast. But God, you don't laugh at me. You don't mock me. You still love me. You still pursue me. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Though I'm a beast, I'm with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me, verse 24, with your counsel. And afterwards, you receive me to glory, to eternity. And I know we all have doubts. But you have to learn how to play offense to manage your doubts by doubting, by fighting against them, first by pursuing community, well, it's by being with a group of people you admire and you respect who possibilitize God in your heart, right? And then you got to keep fighting against your doubts by scrutinizing them at least as much as you scrutinize the truth, right? You will be surprised at all of the assumptions and potential biases and inconsistencies that our doubts have when you scrutinize them. Subjecting doubts to the same level of critical thinking as our beliefs, we will be surprised at the encouragement and relief that we get from our doubts. All right, let's move to our final point. How are we doing? All right. So far, we've talked about expecting, knowing, and fighting our doubts. Now we have our last point, learn to pray our doubts. Now, if there's one thing that is so astounding about the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's this that the Holy Scriptures are not whitewashed with bulletproof figures of faith. Not only is the Bible filled with doubters, not only is our faith carried along through the testimony of doubters, but you are actually called to commune with the eternal God by praying your doubts. <laughs> They're doubting the God that you're praying to. This is a significant departure from like sort of two pitfalls, I would say. So some of you grew up in homes where you were encouraged to suppress your doubts. You were told to just have a childlike faith. And honestly, it was not childlike. It was childish. You had a childish faith. You were told not to engage in the marketplace of ideas because it'll just ruin your mind. You know what I'm talking about. I was told that if I go to seminary, I would learn too much, and I might get messed up, and it would create a bed of doubts that challenges my faith. Any, anyone relate to that? There's some of you. And then there's other of you, perhaps you kind of grew up in that, coming, coming out of that. Instead of suppressing your doubts, you began to enter into a culture that deifies or idolizes doubt. Doubting became your badge of honor to show that you were authentic. It shows that you are a deep thinker. And you began to arrogantly look at all the sheeple, all right? All the sheep who blindly just follow things, but not you, because you are a critical thinker. And that's, in fact, how you like to be known. Your doubts are proof of being your own person, of being fully realized. And so you idolize your doubts. The, uh, the Bible offers a third way. Instead of suppressing doubts or deifying our doubts, we're giving a roadmap to pray our doubts humbly. That's ultimately what Psalm 73 is. Because these are holy words, 
inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are inerrant. They are infallible. And yet they are giving expression to our doubt within a conversation of love to the God of the universe. And how does it all end? With dependence on the Lord. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. See, desiring God, desiring him above all things is like this antidote to the envy that produces doubt. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my heart and my portion forever. See that word portion? When Israel was first going into the promised land, it was divided up and each tribe got a portion of land. And Asaph is saying, he's saying, I don't want land. I want you, God. God, you are my portion. You know, Psalm 1 Psalm 73 in verse 1 begins by saying what? It says, truly God is good to Israel. But then the psalm ends where it began, but kind of like the inverse. He says, but for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. I didn't make my prosperity. I didn't make my deepest dreams. I didn't make my unfilled dreams my refuge. You, I make you, Lord, my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Fam, I don't know if you guys have ever memorized scripture. There's some of you who did because you're like in navigators in college or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? But some of you are like, yeah, I guess I've never memorized a Bible verse. Hear me. Would you consider memorizing verses 25 and 26? Like, do you doubt? You do. Pray your doubts. But bury God's word in your heart at the same time. Do both. Psalm 73 teaches us to expect, know, fight, and even pray our doubts. And I know that like managing our doubts is not easy, as easy as just listening to a sermon. Thank you for listening, but I, I can't fix it. But I dare say that we will, we will walk this life with real gut-wrenching doubts that at times will stop us in our tracks. I just want you to know, fam, you are not alone. And nor is your doubt in any sense catastrophic. Your Savior knows your frame. He knows that he is saying and telling us really hard things. The distance between an infinite God and a finite creature is so vast, it seems impossible for our hearts and brains to catch up with what he is insisting that we believe. I know it's hard. He knows it's hard. And he's so compassionate. And he doesn't flee from us when we're doubting. You know, this reminds me of this time when in the New Testament, there's all these huge crowds that were beginning to follow Jesus because he was feeding them. And so there's huge crowds by the thousands. And then he has their attention and he says, yeah, but whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now he's referencing the Lord's Supper, but they don't know that. And he just sounds crazy. 
And a large portion of the crowd turns back, stops following him. And so he looks at his 12 disciples and he says, do you, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter, gosh, I love that guy. With like Psalm 73, like coursing through his veins, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. To whom shall we go? The problem of why the evil of evil prosper and the good suffer has been a point of frustration and constant wrestling for people since forever, not just modern people in Denver. And the fact that our hearts are really hardwired for justice in this life, a justice that never comes, I mean, at best we get approximate justice, and not even that most of the time. Because that's what life is like, this will be, there will always be a kind of gut-wrenching, doubt-filling pain in our stories. You will have doubts but that must not keep you from a relationship with God, with Christ. On the contrary, Psalm 73 is saying, let them strengthen you. These present realities, this vapor, this vapor is not final or ultimate. God is God. And we're not entitled to all of the information. We're just finite creatures. But let me tell you what you do know, that while you are still in your doubt, while you're still wrestling through it, while you're still working through it with very little progress in your life, even being made, while it still has so much leverage on your spirit, in that moment when you're catering, Christ died for you because he's not afraid of your doubts. He's not ashamed of you. You're not disqualified. On the contrary, he loves you. And he put these sacred words in your mouth so that you can speak them back to God to strengthen you in this life, though it be a vapor. Even still, we can have a meaningful faith. Amen. Amen.